Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in the marketing technology industry. People who work at some of the large media, tech, and marketing companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Now, we're doing something a little bit different before we kick off our show today. Uh, we're doing something called community shoutouts. What is community shoutouts? Well, there is a whole community of other podcasters and people creating content across the marketing technology landscape. And uh, we are massive fans of a variety of those shows and, and uh, content creators. And so in each episode of Making Sense of MarTech, we're going to do a small shout out for a really great podcast. And uh, the kick, kick our first one off is Humans of MarTech. Humans of MarTech is one of the most in-depth shows that discusses and explores what it's really like to work in the marketing technology industry. Uh, recent episodes go deep in how marketers successfully use marketing technology roadmaps, how procrastinators should deal with the upcoming changes of Google Analytics 4, which is a headache for everyone working in the industry right now, along with building modern data models. So the folks over at Humans of MarTech, they really get into what it actually looks like to work in this industry and to do great work. And also you get to learn about how to best harness some of the most innovative technologies in the industry. So if you'd like to go check them out, go to humansofmartech.com and we'll be recommending more shows that you we think that you might like. Now, back to our episode. Today I have Miles Younger. Miles is the head of innovation insights at U of Digital. Uh, U of Digital is an ad tech focused education firm. Prior to joining joining U of Digital, Miles nearly 20 year career in advertising has spanned almost every facet of the business from his time in client-side marketing to his experience as an ad tech founder and product leader to his experience inside the world of agencies and consultings too. Prior to working at U of Digital, Miles was the vice president of go-to-market data at MediaMonks, one of the most innovative consultancy and, and agency practices in, in the world. And so he also was a startup founder as well. He prior prior to working at MediaMonks, he worked at Canned Banners Dynamic Ad Platform, which was acquired by Thunder in 2017. And so uh, Miles also writes and speaks frequently on digital media and advertising topics. He's a regular contributor to publications such as Adweek, Ad Exchanger, and Ad Monsters. And so I can't think of someone that knows the advertising industry from a technology perspective as well as Miles. So today we actually talk about something that has been on my mind quite a bit, which is the convergence of advertising and marketing tools, which is this both worlds, MarTech and AdTech coming together and why that's happening. We also touch on third-party cookies and how it's radically changing the industry, educational challenges in the ad tech space, and then also, how can ad tech shake off its increasingly negative perception? And so, it is my pleasure to bring you Miles Younger. How you doing? I am great, Juan. That was a fantastic introduction. Thank you. I'm, I'm embarrassed now. Oh, don't be embarrassed, mate. It's a fantastic 20 years you spent in the industry. I mean, most people burn out after five, so I don't know how you do it. But in recent years, you've actually spent a lot more time writing about the industry across a variety of publications. And even you launched a Substack recently, which is definitely recommend checking out. And I came across you about a year ago, and you're writing about the ad tech and martech space, particularly from the, how the data warehouse and the cloud is, is influencing that, was fascinating. And so I would love to ask you, where did you start your journey writing and what do you love about it? Um, I mean, I've been writing since I was like, since I learned to write in first grade. So six years old was when I learned to write. And the minute I learned how to write and string words together into sentences, I was writing little stories, comic books. So, you know, I, I've been a writer basically my entire life for my entire literate life. Um, and I think no matter what I was, if I worked in like accounting, I would just write about accounting or I would write, I, I think I'm just compelled to write. And so, you know, advertising, you, you pointed out, yeah, a lot of people burn out after five years. Like I, I genuinely 
like and am fascinated by the world of advertising. And so A, that's caused me to stick around a long time, but B, I feel compelled to write about it because it's, it's, it's too, it's, 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 it's too fascinating not to write. Tell me about that compulsion a bit. What is it about the ad tech industry that, that you just find fascinating? What is that? I mean, it's like, I, I, so I think one of the, the chief uh, sources of inspiration for me in, in, in writing about like say ad tech in particular is, and, and I'm, I'm going to throw ad tech slightly under the bus here is that as a person who is myself, who is, who is a, a classic sort of fascinated with classical advertising. So the creative and psychological process of advertising and how that works. And then you marry that up with, with ad tech, which really was built upon, um, very sort of, uh, uh, entirely sort of math based and transactional based concepts to try to reduce the practice of the discipline of advertising down into essentially a solvable math problem that if you, you know, you put a, a enough server hardware against it, it will solve this problem that we call out. I, I think it's completely wrong. I don't think anybody's ever going to solve advertising in that way. I don't think it's, it's a, it's a machine solvable problem in, in that way. And I think that, that, that it sort of was one of ad techs say original sins in my view. Uh, at the same time, like being a technologist, like I'm fascinated with ad tech, fascinated with the way it works. Clearly there is a need for ad tech infrastructure to power digital advertising and digital marketing, but that tension between the way that advertising actually works for people who have a genuine interest in it and have a genuine desire to understand how advertising actually works. And then the way that ad tech wants advertising to work is like one of the has been one of the biggest sources of inspiration for me and then and, and a lot of things just sort of follow from that but sometimes you have to tip over like 20 different dominoes to get from that or tension to maybe the, the thing that i happen to write about yeah this um I, I usually find that people that are like really fascinated with um a particular industry is that there's some hard problem that's really hard to solve. It's a jigsaw puzzle or a Rubik's cube. They can't quite figure it out. And so they endlessly write and think and try and solve that problem. And Brad Tech, yeah. what I've heard is that it's this complex problem of advertising used to be very creative. And, but now it's, you know, attempting to reduce everything down to a mass problem means that it reduces the effectiveness of advertising in a way, but also it creates a lot of growth in other ways. And so there's this interesting duality of the sort of erudite, you know, mathematical, almost scientific ways of doing advertising, which is through ad tech and everything's measured and everything's tracked and, you know, you get a lot more visibility over performance. But on the other side of the ad tech table is the creative side is it's not non-linear, it's divergent. It's all the creative expressions in which a brand may want to reach a customer outside of the technology. And a lot of those things have a lot to do with brand and they have a lot to do with, I would say, the ability to reach a mass population, but it's very hard to track and it's very hard to understand from a metrics point of view that it's impact. And I, I, what I sense is that there's a tension there that you're always exploring in your writing and thinking, but did you have any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's so... I mean, that that core tension, I think, causes ad tech. Let's say you could apply this to martech. You could apply this to other areas of, of advertising and marketing, digital media. Just has caused and caused ad tech to go down, frankly, kind of myopic paths. That I mean, so I think we're going to talk about this in a minute. Death of the cookie is one of those myopic paths where uh, the browser gods bestowed a massive gift unto the ad tech world called the third-party cookie that allowed you to track behavior across different web domains, which is like, if you think about whether that was proposed today, if somebody was, were to seriously propose that today, think about how hard they would be laughed out of the virtual room of like, wait a second, it's a little vial that tracks you across websites, are you nuts? 
And so they, that gift that was bestowed upon Antec was like myopically exploited. And for instance, things like multi-touch attribution were was going to be, you know, the the uh, ultimate uh, unlocking of the classic Wanamaker problem, the Wanamaker dilemma, which is for anybody who's not familiar with it, you know, it's 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 the old saying, uh, I know that half of my advertising spend is wasted. The only problem is I don't know which half. And that was the thing that, you know, deeply data-driven ad tech was meant to solve. But like I said, it, it has caused ad tech to commit itself to ultimately unproductive paths or non-durable paths. And so like, I, that's the type of stuff I just, I absolutely love to write about because then you can, you, you can unpack it both from a sort of a, a classical advertising perspective around, you know, branding and emotional response and, and things like that. And you can unpack it from a purely technological perspective. Well, okay, let's think about, you know, the information architecture of the web and what happens when you move data affordability by a third-party cookies and what are all the second, third, fourth, fifth order effects of that. So yeah, that's that's that comes through in like a lot of a lot of what I a lot of what I write. When when Google finally kills the third party cookie, I don't I don't know what I'll write it, but I'll I'll find something else. I'm sure there'll be some other data source that will be just <laughs> various. But we will get into that as we go through this conversation because I think there's a fascinating topic, a lot of tumultuous change in the ad tech space. But let's um let's touch on the convergence. What is the convergence? Well, it's the ad tech and MarTech worlds coming together. Uh, the way I think about ad tech traditionally is all of the kind of above the line channels around performance marketing. So, you know, anything that's based in say paid channels or programmatic, you know, I look at uh, the ad tech world as sort of above the line. But when you look at MarTech, the focus of MarTech is a lot about own channels. It's about orchestrating your internal data. It's about customer data platforms. It's about marketing automation. It's about your web experience and personalization and experimentation. A lot of the MarTech world is in the own channels that the brand controls, not the pay channels that the platforms control. And so there is this interesting sort of bringing together of this these two worlds. And increasingly, even in the MarTech Weekly, in my own research, I'm talking with more folks in the ad, ad tech world. Small shout out, I'm actually, Miles and, and myself, we're actually speaking at Prog.io event coming up in the middle of May and a, a, a massive theme out of that event is this convergence of ad tech and martech and all these different forms working together all these different teams now working together but Miles can you help our audience understand why this is happening what are the forces that are, is creating this convergence yeah yeah if you, Juan you and I should have like our own subtrack at that event that's put a pin in that the convergence track. We just need to find like one or two other speakers. Uh, uh, so yeah, the, the convergence thing, Joe, as you were talking about it just now, you made me think of something. Uh, like this goes back, at least for me, like a long way. So my career started in corporate marketing, uh, sort of traditional like offline and online. Uh, I've done a ton of email marketing in my career. I've sent literally millions of B2B marketing emails in my career. Starting in what, 2008, I, that's when I started to get into ad tech when Hand Banners first launched as a self-serve display ad builder. And one of the use cases that I had in mind at that time was for B2B marketing because B2B marketing was very much stuck as an email channel or B2B digital marketing at least, was very much stuck with email as like the channel. And I thought to myself, well, there's like no reason that, that these email marketers or these marketing departments, marketing teams can't use display ads. And I actually went so far as to write an op-ed for a magazine that has been defunct for God knows how long called B2B Magazine. This was back in like, I don't know, 2011, 2012, I haven't linked in my, my, my LinkedIn. It, it links to nowhere now. The link goes nowhere because B2B magazine went away. And I think the article is still available on adage.com, but I'm not credited anymore. They just copied it over and took my name out of it. And the whole, the whole byline was a reaction because in 2011 or so, I went to Dreamforce in San Francisco because that's where I lived at the time. And so it was very easy for me to just like go, go downtown and go to Dreamforce. And, you know, all anybody wanted to talk about was email. And so I wrote an article over 10 years ago 
saying, hey, why not include display advertising? Like there was no reason you shouldn't be, you know, putting your B2B, you know, prospects into a display retargeting campaigns in addition to email nurture campaigns and, and all this stuff that was happening in the marketing automation world at the time. And so like, for me, this goes back a long way. Like there's really no, a lot of the lines that are drawn between these two worlds were ultimately arbitrary. And, and I think that the, you know, it just takes time, frankly, for people who aren't technologists who, you know, have to kind of like make do with the marketing tools that they're given, uh, to wake up to the back and some of these walls are arbitrary and then to find ways to start to tear those walls down, which I think is what we're seeing now with this convergence between ad tech and MarTech. Historically, I've always hit a wall, particularly with brands that are trying to say align their like their own channel efforts with their paid channel efforts. You know, one of the examples is say, you know, you're running a pretty sophisticated marketing automation program. You're building out your audiences. You've got your ERFM segmentation there. You've got you're dealing with say hundreds of thousands or millions of customers. And, you know, you've got all this really rich data, you've got all their transactional habits, you've got, you know, their lifetime value, you've got their engagement scores, you know, you've got like some of the richest forms of data that would really help with say lookalike targeting or even, you know, retargeting customers that abandoned cart, you know, those kinds of things. But what I found was that often the teams that have all this rich data are blocked because their advertising teams are totally siloed in the business. And so the integration problem is a challenge, which is, yeah, how do you send, say, that type of data into more ad tech platforms? But also like, yeah, usually the ad tech teams have a different understanding of who their customer is often and that they're using a different source of data to understand that. And so what I do find is that siloing is a massive challenge because if you can unify those two things, excuse me, what you will have is a really interesting way to really empower really effective targeted advertising you know and that's what we're seeing i think one of the biggest shifts is this shift away from as you mentioned third-party cookies into first-party data but what are some of the opportunities in this space in this convergence what do you think are the things that are really changing the way marketers think about say targeted advertising and where are they finding opportunities to grow well i mean the the first thing is just thinking about the way, I mean, so honestly, right now, uh, a lot of marketing automation tools, MarTech in general, not all of it, but a lot of it is, it, and the people who manage these tools, the marketers who manage these tools and the leaders that make budgeting decisions and things like this, these people like me, I, so I, I paint myself with the same brush, came up in the industry or in their careers in the desktop era. And everybody's like still thinking about things in terms of like everybody's sitting at desktops still and, and having things operate from this desktop vantage point where today, like you're more than likely, I mean, you could be targeting the senior most people in the world. What? What form factor are you actually talking about? You, you're probably going to show up on their phone. Like all of us are just on our phones all day long. And so like that would honestly be probably one of the biggest sort of quantum leaps forward that, you know, MarTech and AdTech both could take is to get out of this desktop mentality and honestly force yourself to think about your buyer and how they spend their day on their phone and work backwards from that. And you're going to end up needing to reach them via both, as you put it, you know, owned channels like email, SMS, et cetera, and ad tech or paid media channels. But if you think about how this person is actually spending their day, it could become a little bit more clear around like not just thinking of these things as like you know siloed channels siloed campaigns but more thinking about all right our buyer is on their phone all day how do we want to show up on that phone 
How do we want to show up in the morning? How do we want to show up at midday? How do we want to show up in the evening? You know, where do we need to show up on their phone? They're on their phone all day. How do, how and when and where do we need to show up? I find that this perspective, which is really what you could probably call it is customer centricity is mm -hmm. perhaps one of the more interesting opportunities here, because I would say that increasingly, you know, marketers need to think less tactically, right? And I think thinking tactically means, you know, what social media posts are we going to do or what email are we going to do or what, what programmatic campaign are we going to run? That's all tactical questions. But if you actually put, say, the customer and what, who they are, importantly, like the demographics, you know, what kind of content they consume, you know, what kind of category they're in, you know, what they're looking to buy. And if you start fleshing out who that customer is, and then you work backwards, as you say, to understanding which channels they're on, which platforms they're engaging with, which communities they're involved with, you know, then you can start getting a really good sense of um, this sort of agnostic viewpoint of how do you reach the customer? Is it a really yeah. great email campaign or is it a, say, a screen on Facebook advertising? Is it um, hiring an influencer on Twitter? Like it becomes agnostic, but a lot of, I think what tech has done to the IT department is also done to the marketing department, which is silo everyone into different buckets based on the technology, right? You've got, you know, DevOps, you've got IT and security, you've got product engineering, and they all sit in different silos. And that's what kind of technology does because it creates this necessity for somebody to really know and understand the technology. But with marketing, it doesn't work that way. Marketing is actually about the customer and harnessing all the various technologies to reach them and engage them, and then also deliver a great experience so they eventually buy from you. You know, so siloing teams and say, here's your, I don't know, your, your SEO team, then there's your, say, marketing automation team. What I find is that that siloing is unnecessary. I think it's more flat and it should be more sort of divergent in the way people think and cross over with those different technologies. But it is hard to do. I mean, it is a challenge. Yeah. But my next question for you, I'll oh, go on, Miles, sorry, go on. No, 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 you go ahead. So Miles, my next question for you is, what is some of the dumb things that you're seeing in this convergence? I mean, surely we all make mistakes, but are people doing some dumb stuff or saying some dumb things around how this is playing out and how marketers should approach it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you and I might be, you know, a, a bit in agreement on this one is sort of a a lack of appreciation for the, the just the power of sheer reach so you know marketing automation crm and martech in general yeah, that addressability that precise addressability is great if you've got a massive you know, email database or whatever kind of, you know, customer loyalty database that you're sitting on top of. But, you know, there's a number of challenges with that. One, you might not have that many contacts in your database. Maybe you're early in your journey as a company. Maybe you're pivoting from a legacy model into a digital model. It could be any number of reasons. And also, like, that's a very picked over audience. Like, you're kind of squeezing blood from a stone with, it, with this first party audience that you've got just kind of not having the appreciation for, you know, when I've worked on B2B marketing team, actually, I mean, up to the present day working with you digital, like one of my sort of stock questions with doing anything in B2B is, okay, we can do the thing, but honestly, what I care more about versus like creating the asset, whether it's a video post or whatever is like how are we going to syndicate it like this is this needs to go outside of 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 kind of you know the four walls of whatever company that you're at and like how are you going to get it outside of those walls how are you going to get it outside of sort of echo chamber that you that you built for yourself with all of these customer databases stuff that you have and so you know that that's that's one of the things you know companies over investing or were expecting too much out of cdps for instance of like, okay, the CDP as a tool is great. Uh, it's only going to be as good or as powerful as the data sets that it is plugged into. And even then, it is going to be limited to those data sets. Like, like it's a customer data platform, but it's not a reach platform. Uh, you, you end up, you know, again, 
I'll probably say it a number of times with this myopia, uh, where you, you kind of focus on uh, customer data and uh, at the peril of ignoring uh, the, the power of you know, bringing messaging outside of your own goals. Yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis. I think that there's a lot underneath that which informs this viewpoint that, say, first-party data is the next third-party cookie. And I think that there's a lot in that, in the sense that clearly there's a lot of rich data there. And there's a lot that you'll learn from your customers from first-party data collection. So from everything as, from as simple as collecting an email address to that transactional data that happens over time, from their behavioral data on your own channels, on your mobile app or on your website, you create a lot more information. And then you, if you go out and ask your customers to share data with you, and they start collecting zero-party data, which is explicitly given from the customer, say their preferences or their whatever things that you want to know, then you have all this rich data. But you know what? That data is probably more powerful and more valuable for instilling a deeper relationship with the customers you already have. And I think that is the big dumb idea here is to say first-party cookies can replace third-party cookies. It's not, the volume is not there for number one. It's a far, far more sensitive data. So you're dealing with far more personal data than you would ever on just a cookie that's collected on a device. Some of the processes to make that work in advertising, such as UID 2.0, you know, Mozilla have come out and said that it's not very privacy safe, even though it's sort of declared to be a more privacy safe solution. And so I think that, you know, what are your thoughts? Do you think that the first party data replacing the third party cookie, is that a dumb idea or is there some something smart to it? Oh, there's definitely something smart to it. I mean, you know, basically, let's say around five years ago, um, you know, uh, there this has since changed. So, like everybody was really bullish on the all these direct-to-consumer startups. Turned out that a lot of them had absolutely horrible business models, horrible unit economics. Not a viable business. But the fact is, everybody looked at these direct-to-consumer models or sort of like these closed loop attribution ecosystems like Amazon, sort of like at the at the far end of the scale in terms of size and, and frankly success, market cap and whatnot. And everybody who's outside of that, I don't know what you would call it, paradigm, right? legacy companies, you know, that, that they're they're they were established, you know, pre-digital era, you know, are outside of this looking in saying, well, we want that too. You know, we we need to have a tighter relationship with consumers. And, and frankly, just, you know, if you just look at you said it yourself, your customer centricity, let's look at how our customers spend their day, how they want to buy, how they want to learn, how they want to discover, how they want to, you know, share, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to be doing that digitally. You need to have digital relationships with your customers, like end of story. And that's going to require first party data, like just as a foundational asset to power these relationships, you have to have data infrastructure <laughs> and data assets. But like I've just seen, and I'm sure you have too one, like too many consulting decks where like the first party data, like, you know, the little cylinder on the PowerPoint slide is connected with like an arrow into like, I don't know, like a DSP or something that's just like, oh, put first party data into our DSP. And I just, I think that's a little bit naive to think that your first party data set is going to really move the needle in terms of like top line growth. I think you called this out a minute ago as well, is it's like first party data on its own is probably more of a, a lower funnel thing. It, it, I, I would be dubious, but it would really make a lot of difference at, at scale. Uh, and so on the one hand, yeah, it's totally necessary to develop, you know, essentially modern relationships, you know, people might own deeper relationship or, you know, 360 degree view to customers or whatever, throw all these buzzwords, but it's basically just like, no, this is just in, a, in the modern era, that is how you need to relating to their customers. You know, in the 1950s, what was the way you needed to relate to customers? Well, you need to have a parking lot outside your business because they all had cars now. So, you know, it's just modern relationship is build a parking lot or or build a store in a mall that has a parking lot. Uh, whereas the modern era, it's all about digital interaction. But yeah, I, it, first party data on its own, at least from a, a growth standpoint, it is, I think it's, it, a lot of people are trying to make it 
serve a function that it really isn't going to serve on its on its own. You know, there's things you can do with it, but first party data on its own really won't help you grow. It's fascinating, as you say, that that the parking lot in the fifties for a store was the way in which you'd build a relationship with a customer, right? And um, Benedict yeah. commented on this in the past. He said that you know, how did these big box grocery stores like Walmart came to be? Well, it's because of the car. Um, and the relationship with the consumer changed because a uh, consumer can now drive and do a, bu- a big grocery shop, put it in their boot, and then drive home. Now, before the car, you'd have far more localized, smaller grocery stores around on every corner because people would have to walk and it's much easier for them. And so this whole idea of a modern relationship is really fascinating because you think about, well, it's not actually about data. It's actually just where your customers are accessing your brand. In what, in what ways do they do that? Is it through search? Is it through your mobile app? Is it through, say, a marketplace or an ecosystem of other apps? You know, what are the ways, what's the car park of the internet is a fascinating question to ask because that doesn't yep. have to do with, with data at all. I mean, the tactical data questions are not as important as, well, where are the consumers? How are they actually getting to you in the first place? And I think that you're right to say that first-party data doesn't have that type of volume, which means that if you focus just on that, on an ad tech practice, it means that you miss all the opportunities for, say, for even contextual advertising that doesn't relate, rely on data sharing, but all of that broad reach and opportunities to just reach a mass consumer and to not sort of discount that. So I think that it's very interesting, very fascinating way of thinking about it. But I would add one more comment here, which is I do think the trigger for this convergence between ad tech and martech is third-party cookie deprecation. You've got things like retail media, data clean rooms. You've got CDPs, which increasingly invested in by ad tech platforms like the Trade Desk and Lodomay in the past four weeks. Uh, they've announced both their own CDP type solutions. UID 2.0, ID5, you know, the list goes on. I think there's more than 100 different post-cookie solutions, and a lot of them rely on first-party data. Now, which sector of the industry manages a lot of first-party data? It's MarTech. And so this world is coming together is actually not a proactive <laughs> shift that you might think. It's actually a reactive shift to Google switching off third-party cookie support in a couple of years. You know, so I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about it, is that a lot of it is actually about the data in this shift between both industries, but we, perhaps we should be thinking more about where the car park is and looking at it at a more unified view instead of this reactionary view of, yeah, cookies are going away. Let's go and invest in all a bunch of MarTech platforms to try and replace that type of targeted advertising. But what are your thoughts on that? Am I getting that right? Is there anything I'm missing in this convergence that's causing it? Or is third-party cookies the main culprit here? I, so, yeah, I agree with what you're saying on third-party cookies. Um, um, you know, any anybody who has sort of been uh, investing media dollars uh, in addressable media over the last, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years is now suddenly like scrambling, looking around, like, okay, I got signal loss over here. How can I fix it? What else can they, of course, land on these MarTech assets that are sitting in CDPs, CRM databases, market automation systems, loyalty programs, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, everybody's salivating over that data because it can help fix the signal loss caused by, you know, third-party IDs being deprecated or blocked. But one of the things I was going to point out is that, you know, and, and this was going back to my media bunch days, one of my kind of like four hypotheses as to like why, one of the reasons why the modern marketing, digital marketing and media landscape, both on the buy side and the sell side, you know, the marketer side, the vendor side, et cetera, sort of is the way it is and why it has these silos is like, it all evolved organically, you know, up to the present day or, or so about 25 years. So 25 plus years ago, there literally was no such thing as digital marketing. Didn't exist yet. It's only existed for 25 years. And every piece of digital marketing that has been sort of added into the mix along that time frame has been added organically. So like first we had, you know, basic banner ads. Then, you know, we had say search ads. And then, I don't know, we had like social, basic maybe social ads. I mean, I can't even remember like the entire sort of timeline of everything that's happened in digital marketing and advertising and media in the last 25 years. 
But every time that one of those things got added, it came with a new team. It came with its own new little silo tech ecosystem that could operate pretty independently from all of the others. And you fast forward to 25 years, you know, gone by and the digital media landscape is by no means mature and it's by no means done changing, but it's matured enough to the point that CMOs, for instance, are stepping back and saying like, wow, this is a mess. Like this is an absolute mess. I have too many agencies. I have too much data in too many different places. There's too much opacity into what's going on at too many different teams that don't talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there is naturally going to be a lot of work invested in the coming years on fixing that, um, you know, just a boardroom level of like, they're just going to start chipping away. They already are chipping away at the problem to essentially unwind a bunch of what is ultimately organizational and tech debt accumulated over 25 years of organic digital marketing and advertising growth and change. And part of unwinding that debt is to start to make things, frankly, talk to each other and, you know, work with each other uh, and be interoperable and be compatible. And I think that's another thing that's driving this convergence. It's just a sign, frankly, of maturity how do you think the um the data warehouse has a role in this i mean as you mentioned there's um there's kind of been like a house of cards has been built over time new technology new platforms come out new team that works on that and then you know it's a big mess because it's all these pieces that don't really work together but they should work harmonious together because they're probably all serving the same customer just in different ways I mean, how does the data warehouse sort of influence this? Because increasingly the cloud platforms are investing into ad tech solutions. The trade desk, AWS, and others are starting to really get into this ad tech world as well. Is that because of this need for integration and the data warehouse has that source of data that's required to make that more harmonious or is there something else going on there? So like this is, I'm going to talk about this at Prague.io. Uh, I expect you'll probably talk about your own flavor of like how data warehouse fits into things. So I'll, I'll have to sit under your session. You'll have to sit it online. This will be fun. We're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll trade POVs on, on data warehouse. I think there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on. So the data warehouse is like, so I have a bunch of different kind of hypotheses on this, you know, one of which is that, okay, again, going back to this 25 years of chaotic growth of digital marketing and advertising, you end up with a typical company, especially a large advertiser as dozens, if not hundreds of point solutions for various things that in the checkoff boxes in the ad tech and martech world. And, and it, with each box that gets checked off, let's just take what, say one of them is like, you know, email marketing, a large company probably has multiple different systems running email campaigns. It's not like they only have one piece of technology that does that. They probably have multiple pieces of technology and multiple data silos running various types. You know, same thing with any type of other paid or owned media. And what ad tech and martech never gave to marketers was any type of core infrastructure. So the analogy that I like to use is that ad tech and martech was as if the telephone was invented. But the telephone company was never invented. The telephone exchange was never invented. So everybody has a telephone and you plug a wire into it. Whoever you want to have a phone conversation with in the future, you unspool a wire over to their house and you hook up their phone to your phone. Then you make a new friend and you unspool a wire over to their house. And you, you know, anyway, so that's basically ad tech and, and marketing. You can see this when you look at like these, you know, a quote unquote tech stacks. Like they're not really tech stacks, they're like tech spaghettis. And that's why is there is no, uh, there's no foundation upon which to build. And I think data warehouses are, are kind of a breath of fresh air for a lot of teams, a lot of organizations like, oh, this is finally a system of record, a source of truth, a single foundation upon which to, you know, have our point solution, you know, integrate into the, the only other thing I was going to point out, getting back to like third party cookies is like. The other thing with third-party cookies and third-party IDs going away is that a lot of, and this is like a little bit arcane, but like a lot of the 
data activation and frankly data storage could happen at runtime when you add third-party cookies. And so it reduced the need to have a system of record because a lot of your data functionality could be pushed out to third-party cookies and pushed out client-side. So it was running on somebody's devices, running in somebody's browser. And this was kind of a crutch that everybody was able to use for, you know, I don't know, what, 15, 20 years. And you take that crutch away and you realize that you can't sort of, you don't have this runtime crutch anymore. So you need to build intentional infrastructure ahead of time that can kind of serve as some kind of data repository. And so that's another thing I think is probably playing out whether people realize it or not, is that they can't do as much at runtime now. So they have to build infrastructure ahead of time. And then the natural one natural path for that type of infrastructure is, is, is databases, data warehouse. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, there is, I think a lot of scalability opportunities, but I think a lot of MarTech has gotten itself into this unfortunate corner of promising no code or low code solutions for marketers or like there's low technical sophistication required to use the tools. So for example, with a lot of customer data platforms, you can go in there and you don't need a lot of training to build it. You don't have to write SQL, for example. You don't need to know any coding languages. You don't need to know JavaScript once it's been set up. The marketing team can go in there, use a WYSIWYG or use a GUI basically just to create what they need to create with that data. But with a data warehouse, it's much more reliant on code. And I think the problem with MarTech is that it's become probably too no low code. And there are people like marketing ops people and others that have that technical skills and those foundations to actually better use the data warehouse. But it's a skills and a technology challenge, which is a lot of marketers are not used to based on the tools they've used in the past. But now switching into... One of the biggest challenges in the ad tech world is education. I mean, every new platform that's coming out, every new technology needs to be learned, you know, new ways to do integrations and all of the above requires a really good foundation of training and education and learning about this stuff. But I guess there are challenges, there's problems with education in ad tech. For one, there isn't a lot of strong pathways at indie university for ad tech specific disciplines. So that's a big challenge, but there's also a lot of like anti-patterns and, and missed incentives in companies to actually train their team up as well. But can you touch on that? I mean, in your introduction letter, when you started with U of digital, you said that ignorance is the opportunity. The ignorance is the enemy of opportunity in the ad tech space. Can you unpack what that means? I mean, what are some of the challenges with training people up in this space? Yeah, so the ignorance is the enemy of opportunity uh, was really born from having a front row seat throughout. Well, I just, I'll go back to my Canada Banners Dynamic Ads DCO days. Uh, you know, that, the ultimately the technology that powered and continues to power DCO is like, fairly rudimentary. It's, it's really not that complex, but when dynamic ads like that had, you know, user level personalization, product level or marketing, things like that, when that was new back in, let's say 2011 ish, my company, along with most other companies in the space had to do like, we basically, the, 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 the sales challenge was twofold. First one was just the typical challenge of selling somebody something and closing a deal. And the second challenge was just like getting them to understand what this thing was because we, we didn't even know how to sort of refer to dynamic advertising because DCO as an acronym didn't exist yet. Or if it did, it was one of many different ways to refer to it. Like I even would sometimes refer to it as XML ads because that would help people connect. Oh, I have an XML product feed and you're going to connect the ad to that. I would never use that term today because it's not an accepted term, but that's the point is that the industry has matured to the point where now you can say DCO 
leave it at that. And people generally understand what you're talking about. Whereas, you know, back in 2011, roughly, you know, a little bit over 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. You had to educate people. So like there was just this huge barrier to you know, even a few years prior to that, or even around that same time, there was a massive education push around just real-time bidding about educating people about RTB of like, well, you don't need to, you know, buy all your media a- ahead of time. You can just buy it essentially in real time and bid for it and bid for it at a user level and it's highly efficient and you know, you could lower your CPMs and optimize your CPMs and optimize for various outcomes. That all needed to be explained to people. And everybody sort of, you know, on one side of the equation, basically the, the DSPs or the exchanges, they know there's this massive opportunity, but there's this big educational barrier to kind of like unlock it. And that, and that takes time. And so like, you know, just plugging you digital for a bit, like the, the, the premise behind you of digital or one premise behind it is, well, let's not let that happen organically. Let's actually be deliberate. Like if if your company, uh, if you're selling something or you're partnering with another company or or developing some new synergy or something novel where there's a bunch of opportunity to be unlocked, let's not just let people kind of like continue to, you know, leave people to kind of their own devices to say self-educate. Let's actually deliberately educate people and accelerate this because... You know, the digital marketing and advertising media industry has run into this again and again and again and again, where there's some big change and education really is just kind of an either an afterthought for everybody, or you have a thousand different ad tech and martech companies all reinventing the same wheel, publishing the same bland explainer blog post that has a little bit of information, but ultimately like isn't really enough for a professional who's, you know, tried to close multi-million dollar deals and, and really moves the needle on, on goals. And so, you know, th- those are some of my thoughts on kind of like where the, the, the roots of the education sort of challenge in the industry and, and at least my own thoughts, you know, you have digital's approach to, to solving it. Yeah. I think it's, it is a fascinating way of thinking about education. I mean, learning about technology is very different from learning about strategy and mm-hmm. Learning about strategy is actually far harder, I think, because yes, it's hard to learn to code and yes, it's hard to learn how, say, DSP works. But once you get it, not a lot changes. It's very sort of stable state. I mean, I've I've come across a lot of folks who learn about marketing automation and then they can work across most marketing automation platforms like Salesforce Mm -hmm. or Adobe, or they work with, say, Oracle's products. And they learn the one tool and then it's just about semantics after that, really. Oh, what do you mean by this data point? Oh, yeah, that's familiar. I'm familiar with that. But when it comes to learning strategy or the skills around how do you help a brand to actually really grow and find opportunity, that's when you find it's much more complex. It's ever evolving. The situation within a company is always changing. The situation within, say, a um a marketplace is always changing. Consumers are always changing. And the technology is always changing as well. And so I'd be interested to know, I mean, do you delineate between the technical skill and the strategic skill? Or how do you see those two things, say, working together? I mean, so like, obviously there is no, and I know this is not what you were implying, but obviously there is no hard line between the technical hands-on keyboard skill and kind of the, the strategic skill. But like, this is one of the interesting things I think about the industry. And again, this gets back to this whole concept about myopia when it comes to digital marketing and and, and, uh, an overemphasis on sort of the the precise tools and precise mechanisms by which something happens And, and thinking that kind of if you can learn to use the tool, then you've kind of solved, say, the education problem, which really is to not the case. If you don't know why you're using the tool or why you're selling the tool, then the deepest expertise on that tool isn't, isn't really going to help you from a, from a strategic sense. Because if you're trying to, if you've got, as an organization, you have, you have big goals, like, you know, let's get back to the first party data thing. Let's say you're like a, a, a legacy brand pre-digital and you're trying to undergo a long-term digital transformation 
plan. And one of those is to, I don't know, you know, build, establish like better, you know, digital owned digital channels with your, with your consumers. Um, you know, it's all well and good that, you know, your marketing team or whatever your product team might sort of develop an understanding of like how SMS notifications work. That's great. But if those people are never kind of given the opportunity to zoom out to 50,000 feet and think about, you know, how does SMS fit into a consumer's day? How do you know, what's the history of these tools and, 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 you know, what is the broader ecosystem in which like say SMS lives, you're basically going to prolong the amount of time that it takes you to undergo, say this digital transformation effort, because you've sort of said, all right, well, if each of these teams has developed, you know, proficiency on the tool set that that team uses, therefore I've checked off the box. But the fact is, is that the more you go along, say a maturity curve, the more that these things need to like talk to each other. And so if you need the, you know, your SMS interactions to be compatible with your email, your onsite, your in-app interactions. If those respective teams don't understand what the other one does, you're going to make slow progress against your, your goal. And so I think it is it, it, very important actually to delineate between sort of the hands-on keyboard skills versus the more bird's eye view perspectives that, that you can develop. Hmm. Now, lastly, as we round out this conversation, we've left one of the more controversial topics um, but Miles, I'd love for you to give our audience a few key ways to think about the ad tech industry as we move forward into this incredible convergence of ad tech and martech and third-party cookie deprecation, new platforms and new skills to learn, which is, I mean, ad tech just has a bad rap right now. I mean, let's just face it. You call it myopic. I say that that's a reputational problem, but you know, ad tech has, um, done so much for a free and open internet. It's enabled untold billions of people to come online. But recently, there's been a lot of challenges for the ad tech industry on two fronts, on the privacy space and tracking and targeted uh, um, consumers and consumers increasingly being concerned about that data collection. On the antitrust front, which is the monopoly, say, of Google and Facebook increasingly sort of taking the entire market share of so much of ad tech. And these two challenges have caused a lot of, I think, ne negative reputation for the ad tech industry as a whole. Monopolies, bad actors, even the element of fraud and, and opaqueness around uh, where your ad, ad dollars are actually going, invasion and surveillance of, of users' privacy. But how can you navigate this and think about, well, what are the ways in which ad tech can improve on some of these vectors? I mean, Perhaps you'd want to touch on the DOJ case. Is that good or bad for the reputation of the ad tech industry as a whole? Because there's so much good in it, but also there's so many challenges. And I think a lot of those challenges are actually overinflated and, and there's too much hysteria around some of the challenges are not as big as you might think they would be. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it depends on who you, whose, whose perspective you're, you're getting. I agree that there's definitely a, a hysterical perspective to this that definitely overemphasizes the, I don't know, say threat, whatever that, you know, ad tech or, you know, digital data sharing or whatever poses. But at the same time, I mean, I, I think, like I said earlier, the, the, um, the browser gods bestowed this, the gift of fire was ever was, was the third party cookie. Like if you think about from a technical spec perspective while the third party cookie is and the, and the, the, the massive unintended consequences that and unforeseeable i'm not like laying blame on whoever specked out the third party cookie that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is to repeat what i said earlier is like if someone were to pro propose the third party cookie today everyone would be aghast like wait you're Specifically, you're natively building a device or a mechanism into the browser as which will allow anyone to reconstruct anyone's browsing history in its entirety, practically. And that's just, and there's no, you don't have to like get approval. There's nothing. This is like literally anybody who can start deploying third party cookies. 
anyway, they'd be laughing in the room. So like that, I think that being undone is gonna not to sound uh, glib about it, but I think that'll fix a lot of problems because I think that was kind of like an, an, an original sin. And I think uh, that's a second order effect of that is going to start to take care of a lot of the the transparency problems in in the ad tech ecosystem. Because that's the other thing is that digital advertising never has had the God's eye view that you, that marketers and publishers and whoever was able to have, say, with television advertising, with radio advertising, with magazine advertising, with newspaper advertising. Those industries all had God's eye views. You had, you know, Nielsen for TV and I don't know how long they've done radio. I don't know much about radio. But anyway, you have like TV ratings and radio radio. You have circulation audits for magazines. You have circulation audits for newspapers and newspapers were subscription driven and you had to pay for them. So there was another way to kind of audit the distribution on a newspaper. It's like the money had to change hands. And so, I mean, frankly, that's like a place where like digital media and accountability kind of come into the conflict because a free and open internet is great on the one hand, but when you never have to really buy anything, there's not really a way to prove that it was a human on the other side. Like it's a good way, a good sort of rule of thumb to prove that there was a human there is to paraphrase to my former whatever boss's boss or boss's boss's boss, Pete Kim, Mighty Hive. Like that was one of his things he used to like to say is that bots don't buy things. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great rule of thumb for gut checking reach numbers and gut checking attribution, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, yeah, I think, Getting rid of the third-party cookie is going to eliminate a, a lot of funny business. I think that's going to also start to cascade over into a lot of the transparency issues because it's going to become a lot less financially feasible for a lot of fraudsters out there. It doesn't mean it's going to eliminate all of it. It's going to reduce the number of paths that they're able to take. Hmm. You're right. I've never thought about it like that. In the most other major technological innovations that brought about advertising tv radio they've always had some standard measure they always had some benchmark they always had this sort of very centralized entity that would control a lot of the say the ratings or the popularity and the, the effectiveness of well as well but with a free and open internet yes there's uh, so much diversity in how you track and measure things um it's really chaotic but also within chaos and a lack of standardization comes fraud um and i think yeah. that third-party cookies even Within the first 12 months of the first uh, first cookie being used, the Financial Times were running stories about how, um, you know, this could be a massive privacy implication. And so- Oh, really? Yeah. So so even back in the early days, because the first the first cookie that was developed was um, developed by Mosaic, the one of the browsers around the time by Netscape, and it was used for the purposes of remembering somebody when they add products to cart on an e-commerce website. And the e-commerce- website was for MSI. And so if you go right back to those days, they developed a cookie, they launched it. They, I think Google, sorry, Netscape and another company tried to develop standards really in the early days, but they never followed them. And so third-party cookies has always been, as you say, original seed. It's always been mired in controversy and privacy challenges, but it's also brought about so much value for marketers and advertisers as well. You can't deny that. And it is one of the last open platforms for advertising. It's decentralized. There's no central entity that manages it, which means that it's a it's an open source technology mm -hmm. for all brands. So with all of that considered, I mean, yeah, moving away from it may be one of the ways in which advertising creates a bit more standardization in how um, things are tracked and measured, but also get away from the opaque ad fraud as well. But look, I'm optimistic. I think that... The ad tech industry is going through such a major, dramatic sort of transformation right now. And Miles, thank you for helping us understand this a little bit more. But yeah, yeah. where can we find you on the internet? Oh, well, let's see. I am. I post a lot to LinkedIn these days. Not quite as much to Twitter. I don't know. It's not, not as much of a fun see on Twitter these days as it used to be. Thank you, Elon. Uh, yeah, I've got a sub stack. I try to find time to write on that thing but it's oh boy it's been tough i think it's just a miles younger it's just the name of my sub stack uh and then yeah yeah prog io in may in vegas 
We're Brazilian. Come say hi. Come say hi. So, Miles, where can we uh, learn a bit more about education and training in the ad tech space? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, U of Digital is at uof.digital, uo.digital. That's where you can learn more about uh, what I'm doing these days at U of Digital. Uh, personally, I am all over LinkedIn, post there a lot, a little bit to Twitter. And then I've got a Substack just called Miles Younger. Uh, probably pretty easy to find on Substack. Great. Well, so at Making Sense of MarTech, we are regularly interviewing people at the forefront of the industry, the great thinkers, the great innovators, people like Miles Younger, who is right at the forefront of this convergence of ad tech and MarTech. So if you'd like to stay in touch and be on the feeds, you can subscribe and review this podcast. And you can also subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Hey, Miles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Juan. This is a lot of fun, man.